Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. How you guys doing? Good. Welcome to True Life. I'm not Michael. Uh, my name is Joel. If you haven't been here before when I'm preaching, uh, I'm one of the guys that preaches here at True Life, and I'm excited to be up here today. We are wrapping up a series called Covenant. We've been in it for, what, two months now? Something like that? I'm asking Michael. Uh, it's been a while. So we, we've been through a lot of different topics related to covenant and how all the relationships in our life, at least the important ones, should be covenant relationships. So we covered covenant marriage, covenant friendship, covenant singles, uh, all, all kinds of different topics in there. And it's been a really good series for me. Uh, I, I believe that it's been a good series for our church. I think everyone here has gotten a lot out of it. Um, could be wrong, but I, I think we have as a whole. What today's message is, as we wrap up, it's called Covenant God, and I want you to think of this message as a prequel, uh, that when you hear this message, I think it'll bring life to the rest of the messages in this series. How many of you guys have ever seen a movie or read a book that was a prequel? Okay, a few of you. Uh, a, a recent example of that in Hollywood um, would be The Hobbit, right? So maybe you saw, you guys like The Hobbit? Did you guys know that the star of The Hobbit plays guitar on our worship team? His name's Aaron Allison. Oh. I was really, I was going to take the time this week to Photoshop his face onto the Hobbit poster. And I just, I didn't get to it. So, but, uh, but so the Hobbit, you know, it tells the backstory to Lord of the Rings. So when you see the movie or you read the books, you then understand more of the Lord of the Rings story, uh, or with Star Wars, even though the, the prequels were pretty terrible and they led us to Jar Jar Binks and all that kind of deal. Uh, it gave us some backstory to what was going on in the other episodes, right? And so today's message, as we understand that God is a covenant God, and he's been a covenant God from the beginning of time, that that's always been his character, his nature. I believe that if we can understand that, that it'll help us make sense of having a covenant marriage and covenant friendships and being a covenant single. And, and all the different aspects of covenant will make more sense when we get that God is a covenant God and that he's always been that way and that he'll never not be that way. So I want to start in the beginning of the Bible. That's where we're going to start. I will be able to actually get through this in the 45 minutes or so that I have, but we're going to start right in the beginning. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there. There's like four pages turning because everybody else has a cell phone. So the rest of you guys, I'm sorry you, you don't have a cell phone yet. But uh, uh, so, so go to Genesis 1. It's, uh, we're going to start in verse 28. What's happening here is God has created the world. He's created everything. And in particular, he's created mankind. And this is his first covenant with mankind. It's the first time that he is laying something out for them. And we've talked about what a covenant is in the past messages, but it's simply that two people are entering a relationship, each of them bringing different things to that relationship, and they're committed to one another. So what God is bringing to this relationship is literally everything. Hey, I just created the whole world. I created everything. I created life. I created you. And he's about to lay out the expectation of what he wants them to bring to this relationship. So let's look at this. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food, right? This is the first covenant that God ever made with mankind. And this is the this is the coolest covenant in my opinion, right? Like this is, hey, I'm, I created everything. I created you. I created life itself. Here's what I want from you, right? He says, um, I want you to have sex and make a bunch of babies, right? That's the first thing he says, be fruitful and multiply. I'm like, this is a good start to a covenant, right? I've given you everything. What I'm expecting back is that you guys have sex and make babies. 
Oh, okay, cool. So far, so good. Uh, I want you to rule over the earth. Okay, all right, that sounds awesome too. I want you to eat vegetables and fruit. Well, okay, yeah, I can do that. Uh, I mean, this is the coolest covenant like, that I, I read in the Bible. Like, it's so simplistic. It's I've created everything. Enjoy it. Take care of it. Enjoy each other. Take care of each other. It's awesome. Like this, this is so cool. If we get that this is the covenant that God wanted for mankind from the beginning. And if we were to go on and read chapter 2, which we won't hear for time's sake... Chapter one is the broad kind of high level story of creation, right? So it doesn't use names like Adam and Eve and stuff like that. It's, it's talking about high level. God did this. Chapter two gets a little bit more specific, right? So it talks about Adam and Eve and it talks about in particular part of this covenant was, hey, I've put this tree in the garden. I don't want you to eat of it, right? And that's it. That's the only like don't do in the covenant. Everything else is, is to do, to, to, to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth, to take care of it, to, to, to rule over it. And the one thing he says is, don't do this. Don't eat of this tree. And, and some people say, well, why did he do that? And, and we, we hit on this a lot, but it's because he desired for us to have free will. And every covenant, every covenant has one way out. See, we've talked about contract in other messages. A contract has many, way out, many ways out. How many of you guys have a mortgage, right? Nobody. Okay, I forgot. We're on campus, right? None of you you guys are like, what's a mortgage? Okay, so I have a mortgage, okay? Uh, And when you have a mortgage, there's like 87 million pages that you have to sign, right? Of all these stipulations that you have to meet. And and it gives all these lists of things that if this happens, you could get out of it. Only if this and only if that. But it gives a list of them, right? It's not just one way out. Uh, With covenant, there's one way out. And it's for you to walk away from that covenant. It's for you to to basically defy the person that you went into covenant with and say, I'm I'm not doing this anymore with you. There's no, hey, if they're, you know, lazy one day or if they do this one day. We kind of joked about that in the marriage one that, that... we never would want to hear those contract terms in a marriage vow. Uh, same with God. He doesn't allow us to have a contract where, oh, you're out of this, if this, and this, and this. It's one way. It says, if you choose to, right? So I'm putting this tree here because if you at any point don't like this awesome covenant, I'm giving you a way out and you can take it. It's right there. And so that's why that tree is there. And so if we read chapter two, it explains that. Um, but the whole first covenant is really, here's the earth, take care of it, enjoy it, enjoy each other. And on a side note, I was thinking about this as I studied. This is why we believe that Christians should take care of the earth, right? We don't worship the earth. We don't worship creation. We don't elevate animals or trees or, or, or any of that above mankind or above God. But we are to take care of it. That was God's first deal with us. He said, I want you to take care of this, right? And so taking care of the earth, that's not a liberal thing. That's not a, a, a Democrat thing. That's a God thing. God said, take care of this. And so whatever that looks like in your life, take care of the earth. It doesn't mean you have to become a hippie. It just means that you love God and you know he gave us this earth. And so we'll do our best to take care of it. Um, I I think most people, even if you're not into taking care of the earth, you don't think that's necessary. I think you could see all of us got mad uh, when when something happens. It's extreme. that really does kind of damage the earth. So I was thinking a couple years back when there was that crazy oil spill, right? And you could watch the camera of it just shooting gallons and gallons of oil into the ocean every day for like a month and a half or something, right? All of us were angry. Like, I don't know one person that saw that and was like, eh. Whatever, no biggie. Like everybody was angry. Like it didn't matter what your, your, your thought on uh, the environment or any of that was, that made you angry. And, and so as humans, we're to take care of the earth. We're to steward it well. The same way we steward our money and, and all of our other resources, we're to take care of it. Um, so moving on from that, this is the first covenant that God gives us and it's awesome. 
So if you're taking notes, you can write that. First covenant, awesome. Um, but the thing is, mankind failed. We sinned. You guys know the story, right? Like, even if you, this is your first time in church, you've probably heard some version of the story. We failed. We did eat of that tree. You know, it's, it talk, I was reading it today before I got here. I just wanted to read through it. And it, it talks about Eve being deceived by the serpent, and she takes the fruit, and she eats it. And she gives it to her husband because he was right there with her. And he eats it. And we, and we fail, and we sin, and, and we defy God, and we take that one way out of the covenant. But what I want to see is what's God's response, because he gave us this way out. So you'd think at this point, he'd be done with us, right? Like that he would be done with the covenant because he told us, like, go ahead and eat of that fruit and, and the covenant's over. Like that, that's your way out. Uh, so let's read the responses. It, 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 he comes and he talks to them and he finds out what they've done. And you have here the woman, you have the man, and you have Satan, right? The serpent. So God's first thing that he does, he doesn't go to the woman first. He doesn't go to the man first. He goes to our enemy first. And so I want to read this Genesis 3, 15. It says, I will make you and the woman hostile toward each other. Speaking of Satan, I will make your descendants and her descendants hostile toward each other. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. So I'm going to give you guys a really big word here. Uh, if, you, if you're into theology and stuff like that, you'll like this. If not, you'll, you'll probably just kind of tune me out for a second. But there's a word theologians use called proto evangelium and i could be saying that wrong right it means the first gospel uh this message this promise that god puts out here at at really what's the beginning of time for us is the first gospel he's proclaiming to our enemy to satan that there will one day be an offspring to come from woman that will crush the head of satan that will defeat satan and though satan may bruise his heel he, he, satan's head is going to get crushed. I, I don't know about you, but I'd rather have my heel bruised than my head crushed. Um, just me. And, and so this is important. Be, uh, l- let me talk about this for a second. He says not, hey, Adam, your offspring is going to crush the head of Satan. He says, Eve, your offspring will crush his head. And the reason this is important is throughout the Old Testament, offspring was typically accredited to the man, which is kind of crazy since we do very little work in that process. Um, but it's normally credited to the man, right? Like even outside of the Bible, you can see in kind of older times, it's always son of whatever, right? Daughter of whatever. Like it's always the, the father's name, not, not the mother's name. But he doesn't say to Adam, hey, your offspring is going to take care of this. He says, Eve, yours will. And the reason that's important is because as you know, when Jesus comes, he doesn't come from man. He comes from God and he comes through Mary, a woman. Right? So this is huge. Like I know it's a little sentence in the Garden of Eden, but he's saying you're going to have an offspring one day and, and he will defeat Satan. And, and so this is huge. I, ho- I hope you guys are getting this. But um, the devil, he doesn't understand this at this point. Like sometimes we give him way too much credit, but he doesn't know what's going on. He doesn't know what God's thinking. <laughs> yes. All right. So you guys might get a chance to use your Bibles after all if this thing goes. So uh, um, the devil doesn't know what's going on at all. He doesn't know the mind of God. So when God's saying, hey, you know what? There's going to be an offspring and he's going to crush your head. Satan's probably like, I have no idea what you're talking about, right? He thinks he just won. He thinks he just defeated mankind, which was God's prized possession. He's like, I defeated them. They're done. And, And he doesn't know what God's talking about. But God knew what he's talking about. And God has a covenant. And the reason I think this is amazing is that God could have come down and just yelled at Adam. He could have yelled at Eve. He could have went for them first. But he loved them so much. He, he, before he even dealt with their sin, before he even talked about their punishment, he talks to their enemy. And he says, you're, you messed with the wrong kids. And, and I'm going to defeat you and you're going down. 
And I think that we need to understand that's God's heart for us. That when we sin, yeah, God's mad. God wants us to change. God wants to see that sin out of our life. But the first thing God is doing when we sin is he's going after our enemy. He's like, no, 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 no. Like, that's not going to keep going. You're defeated. I have a plan to get them out of this. And that's still God's heart today. If you're stuck in sin, is that God wants to get you out of that sin. And he's doing everything in his power to set you free. God then illustrates right there and then forgiveness. And I want to read this scripture to you. In Hebrews 9.22, it says, Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. The next thing God does after he rebukes Satan, after he lays out the punishment for Adam and Eve, is it says that he takes animal skins and he makes clothes for them. Where would he get animal skins? From animals, right? And, and an animal without skin is a dead animal. Uh, I don't know if you guys know that, but if you, if you take the skin off something, it doesn't live very long. Um, and, and so the reason this is important is throughout the Old Testament, we see that every time someone sinned, they made sacrifice. They killed an animal and they, and they took it and the blood and, and the death was supposed to atone for their sin and for their evil and their wickedness. The first thing God does to his children, he goes and kills an animal and takes the skin and covers them. It's a sign there that he's already acting in forgiveness. He's already pursuing them. He's not waiting for them to do some righteous deed. He's not waiting for them to get it right. He's not waiting for them to work harder. He's the one that initiates forgiveness. He's the one that pursues them. He's the one that's coming after them right from the beginning. And some of you guys struggle with sin. Some of you guys have some deep, dark secret that you don't want anyone to know about. And every time you do that thing, You feel like you need to earn your way back to God. You feel like I need to hide back here. I need to do a few good deeds. I I, I need to take a week before I can really get back in the presence of God. And that's a lie. That's a lie from the same enemy that threw that sin at you. What God says is the moment you sin, the moment you sin, you can come back to him. He's coming after you in that moment. Right? It doesn't say, oh, he left Adam and Eve alone for a few weeks to think about what they'd done. Right? Some of you guys had your parents do that as kids. Go think about what you've done. That's not what God is saying. God says, right now, right now I want to forgive you. You just did it a second ago. I want to forgive you now. I, I want you to let that go now. Stop dwelling on it. Stop holding on to it. Stop beating yourself up. Now I want to forgive you. And when you come to God, you repent. I heard, I heard one of my pastors say this one time. That it's almost, if you could picture God just interrupting you. Because sometimes we do this. I don't know if you guys have been in this position, but you just, you just wallow in your sin, right? Like you just get down and you're like, God, I'm so dirty. I'm so awful. I'm so disgusting. And the whole time God's just up there like, I forgive you. Shut up. I forgive you. It's done. Move on. You're forgiven. Stop talking. Let's hang out. Like parents, could you imagine if that was how your kids apologize? Right? Like my daughter apologizes when she does something wrong or when we've informed her that she's done something wrong. And um, you know what? I'm good with one apology. If my daughter's like, I'm sorry I did that, Daddy. You're forgiven. I love you. Let's, let's sit on the couch together. Let's talk. You know, if my daughter was sitting there like, Daddy, I'm sorry, and I'm so bad, and I feel so off, like, I would feel like I did something wrong. I'd be like, what did I do? Why does she think this way? And that's, that's God's heart. It's the heart of a father. And he's up there, I forgive you. Let's move on. And that's, that's how he treated Adam and Eve in that moment. That he wanted that relationship to continue. He wanted to know them. Was it going to be different? Was there consequences? Sure. But he wanted to stay in relationship with them. He wanted to stay in covenant with them. See, we often compare the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. And we think that God in the Old Testament had anger issues. 
and he was kind of mean, and, 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 and then he went to therapy, right? He went to anger management. He came back as Jesus, and everything was a lot better. But that's not the case. God was loving from the beginning. God's covenant with us is everlasting. And we don't have to wait till Matthew to see the love of God. We don't have to wait until we get to the New Testament to see the Father's heart. We see it in the, in the third chapter of Genesis when he pursues his own children in the midst of their darkest moment. At this point in history, that was the darkest moment in human history. And to this day, it's, it's the second darkest moment. And we'll get to that in a second. But the darkest moment in our, in our history is mankind. And, and God is there. I forgive you. I want a relationship with you. I'm going to punish your enemy. I'm going to go after him. I hope you guys are getting this. Uh, as we move on from Adam and Eve, we can look at a host of other people that God went in covenant with, that God had relationship with, that were as screwed up or more screwed up than you and me. Depending on your level of screwed upness, I guess. Um, so, so right after Adam and Eve, they have a son named Cain. Okay? You know what Cain does? Cain and his brother Abel go to sacrifice to God, like we just talked about. So Abel kills some animals, sacrifices them to God. Cain brings some fruit and vegetables and sacrifices those to God. God says, I like Abel's sacrifice better. We don't get the details of that. The Bible doesn't fill us in on why. Just, it's not the most important detail in the story, but he says he doesn't, doesn't like Cain's sacrifice. So Cain goes, you know what God will probably like? I'll murder my brother, right? And so he kills his brother, he mur- and God warns him. Like he sees Cain upset and angry, and he says, what are you doing? If you do right, you'll be accepted. But, but evil's waiting at the door. Sin's waiting at the door to have you. You have to master it. The very next thing Cain does is goes out and kills his brother for worshiping God better than him. That doesn't happen today. But uh, um, so, so Cain murders his brother and then he has this talk with God, right? God, God and him have this talk and Cain says, God, I'm scared for my life. Everywhere I wander, people are gonna wanna kill me. God should say, God should say at this point, good. That's what you deserve. You're a murderer. You're a sinner. They should kill you. You killed your brother. But you know what he says? I'll put a mark on your head and no one will touch you. Because he enters covenant with a murderer. He enters covenant with a guy who kills his brother because he worships God better than him. That's the God we serve. That's the kind of covenant he puts in our life with him. And so we move on from Cain and we could go to a guy like Noah, right? I've said this before, but Noah's hilarious. Noah, Noah builds this ark. It says he's the most righteous man on earth, right? Builds this ark. The first thing that we see after he gets out of the ark, or one of the first things we see is that he plants a vineyard and grows grapes, makes wine, gets wasted, passes out naked, right? And then one of his sons mocks him when he wakes up and finds out that his son mocked him, which who wouldn't mock him? He's naked, drunk in his tent. He curses his son for life. He said, you're cursed throughout all generations. Yeah, dad of the year right there, you know? Like wasted and naked and your son laughs at you and mocks you and you curse him for life? You deserve that, no? That's the guy God made covenant with. And so we can move on from there. We can go to Abraham. Abraham's a coward, right? Like he's a total coward. He's the father of many nations, all this great stuff that we hear about him. On two different occasions in the Bible, it talks about him and his wife, Sarah, going into cities. And Abraham says the same conversation twice to his wife. Hey, so when we go into the city, you're really attractive. Like Abraham Abraham has a hot wife, right? He's like, you're really hot. So she's like, 
thanks, you know, that's a good compliment. He says, however, there's a lot of men in this city, and they're probably going to want to take you as their wife. Okay, where are we going with this? Well, I want you to tell them you're my sister. Okay, because I don't want them to kill me and take you. So do the math there. What he's saying is, I, I don't mind if they take you. I just don't want to die. Twice! And both times, God intervenes. And, and he goes to the leaders of these different places. And he says, you guys are in big trouble. You've taken that guy's wife. And you didn't know it was his wife. You thought it was his sister. But I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to destroy you guys anyway. Because that's the guy I made covenant with. And they're like, what? And they, they give Sarah back to Abraham. And they're like, get out of our city. You're a liar. You know? And this is the guy God made covenant with. This is the guy that God built a nation out of. That's him. He's a coward. Right? And, and we, what I want to show you is, is an important verse uh, where God speaks to Abraham. Genesis 17. He says, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. That was his name at the time. Uh, your name will now be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. And that's what Abraham means, father of many nations. God changes Abram's identity in this moment. The moment that he goes into covenant with God, his identity changes. Who he is changes. God says, your father, the people who named you, the people who raised you, they don't determine who you are. Who determines who you are is me. And when you enter covenant with me, your identity changes. We can move on to Abraham's grandson, Jacob. Jacob means deceiver or liar. And he lived up to that name, right? Like he deceived and he lied and he connived and he did some terrible things. Well, in a moment where he goes into covenant with God, he wrestles with God, it says. And so he gives him a new name, Israel, which means contended or wrestled with God. He changes his identity when he comes into covenant with God. And some of you today, you're carrying around labels. You're carrying around titles. You're carrying around an identity that was not given to you by God. And you need to let it go. Some of you have that label of addict or pervert or gay or, or whatever other label you're wearing. It can change when you come to God. It can be dropped on the floor at the foot of the cross. And God can say, here's your new identity. And you might say, well, what, what is that new identity when I come to Christ? I want to go to Ephesians 1 and read this. This is, this is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, and he starts almost every letter that he writes like this. He says, to the, say it again, saints, to the saints, and not the football team, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. What's beautiful about this is that Paul uses this in almost every letter that he writes. He calls people who have come to Jesus saints. The only letter that he doesn't use this on is Galatians. And you say, well, why not Galatians? Because the, if you read the letter, they were struggling with religious pride. They thought they were awesome, and they thought if they did a lot of good things, and they followed the law real carefully, that then God would accept them. So he avoids any titles that would make them feel holy or awesome. I think it's really smart on his part. But every other letter he writes, even to the Corinthian church, and if you haven't read Corinthians, let me give you just a little uh, detail that hopefully will, will help you see why this is important. In Corinthians, or in Corinth, there was a guy in their church who was sleeping with his stepmother. Okay, let's sink it in for a second, right? Like, he's having sex with the wife of his father on a regular basis, and everyone in the church knows about it. Think how uncomfortable that would be, right? Like, obviously, they struggle with gossip, too, I guess. But, uh, so everyone in the church knows about it. 
And Paul calls them saints. He didn't say you'll be saints one day. He didn't say when you get this mess worked out, you'll be saints. He calls them saints in the beginning of his letter. And so when you come to Christ, your new title, saint. You're a saint. Some of you guys grew up Catholic, right? How many, how many people grew up Catholic? Let me hear your noise. Anybody? Woo. They're like, this is the loudest I've ever been. Uh, um, so you think, you know, from the Catholic Church, you think of St. Paul and St. Francis. I went to Italy a few years back, and I got to see some of the uh, kind of historical stuff. They have these statues, and they have candles you can light to all these different saints. And they, they make, there, there's these stipulations you have to meet to be a saint, right? Like different miracles you have to do and all this kind of stuff. The Bible has really one stipulation. Come to Jesus. That's it. Then you're a saint. <laughs> it's really easy, right? Like, I wish, you know, if I could have some talks with the Catholic Church, like, the leaders be like, you guys, I don't know where you got all these other rules about needing to do a miracle. And, like, the miracle's in your heart. You come to Jesus and you go from being a sinner to a saint. You go from being unholy to being holy. You go from being the enemy of God to being the friend and family member of God. That's, that's the miracle. That's what makes you a saint. And so, you might hear this word uh, in the Bible, sanctify. It's the process that God uses to work on us, to make us better, to make us more like Jesus. That comes from the same root word as saint. So when you see that word sanctify, if it's ever confusing, just think of it as saint-ify, right? Like, because it's, you're becoming more of a saint throughout your Christian life. You're becoming more holy, more perfect, more like Jesus. The day you come to God, you're justified, and he makes you holy, and he makes you right. But in action and in practicality in your life, you become more of a saint over the course of your life as a Christian. You, bec- you become sanctified or saintified. And so I'm fine with the title saint. We can call him St. Paul and St. Francis and, and everything like that. As long as we have like St. Tim and St. Dan and St. Mike, right? And like as long, as long as we have St. Caitlin or St. Liz, St. Lindsay, right? Like, like we're all saints. If we've come to Jesus, we're saints. And that's pretty exciting. Like, maybe you've never thought of yourself like that. Maybe you're like, I'm no saint, right? Like, maybe you've even said that phrase before. Uh, if you've come to Jesus, you're a saint, and that's awesome. And if we, we keep moving on through the Bible, right, we, we, Abraham and, and, and Jacob, if we were to keep moving on, we could see Jacob's 12 kids. Disastrous, right? Like, he has 12 kids, and this is now the nation of Israel that, that is born out of him. But, I mean, they do all kinds of bad stuff. Like, I mean, just crazy stuff that you read and you almost laugh it's so bad. Like, so one of his guy, one of his sons is sleeping with one of his wives because Jacob had more than one wife, and that's a whole other story. But, but one of his kids is sleeping with her, and, and then two of his other kids, right? Like, okay, well, let me back up. His daughter gets raped. Okay, and then he says to the guy who raped her, yes, you can marry her. Uh-huh. Okay, um, so he's a coward like his grandfather. Uh, and, and then his son said, yeah, you can marry her as long as you get circumcised, right, in your whole town. So they get the whole town circumcised, awful, and they're all laying around in pain. And then the sons come in and murder the whole town. Like these are the people that God made covenant with. I, I don't know how to stress this enough. They're terrible, awful people. And so are we. And God makes covenant with us. If we keep going, we would eventually get to Moses. He looks kind of like Charlton Heston, from what I understand. Um, they're coming out of the nation of uh, out of the nation of Egypt, and, and trying to find the promised land. And while they're traveling, God gives them commands. We call it the Ten Commandments, right? And, and, and He lays out some other laws. The big ones are the Ten Commandments. 
And after laying all these out, he, he again, the same way we see in the garden where he has that tree and he says, this is your one way out. He does that again to the, to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 30. I want to read this to you. It says, this day I call the heavens and the earth as witnesses against you that I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. And now choose life that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Listen to his voice and hold fast to him for the Lord is your life. I love this verse, especially that last line. For the Lord is your life. God is saying, if you stay in covenant with me, you're going to have life. In fact, I am your life. And so if you stick with me, you'll have life because that's who I am. Jesus then reflects this same statement in John 14, 6. You probably heard this before, but it says, I am the way, the truth, and the, the life. Again, God saying, I am life. And so, so what happens in our culture is sometimes we want life apart from God. But that doesn't exist because God is life. He's not saying just that he's the author of life or that he's life-giving. But he is life. We talk a lot at True Life about being a life-giving church. You guys have probably heard us say that. Well, what that means is that we talk about Jesus a lot because he's life. There's no secret formula. There's no secret sauce. That, that, you know, it's Jesus. Right? It's the same thing that's been preached for 2,000 years. It's Jesus. We come up with new terms that sound cool and relatable, but it's Jesus. Like When we say life-giving, what we mean is Jesus. We mean that we talk about Jesus, that we point to Jesus, that we pray to Jesus, that we'll do everything that we can do to point you to Jesus because he is life. And so in our culture, when we say, well, we want life, but we don't want God, we don't want to do life God's way. Well, you don't want life. You can't have life without life, right? Like he is life. So you can't get that without him. It's one and the same. Like it's, it's a package deal. Jesus is life. God is life. You don't get life without him. And so when we break away from God, when we break away from the way he says to live our lives, we're walking into death. We're walking in destruction. We're walking against life. We're going the opposite way of life. We can't expect life to come out of death. And we can try and try and try through spirituality, through self-help, through therapy, through coping mechanisms, and through a million other resources that may imitate life, that may imitate God, to fill that gaping void that's in each of us that only God can fill. But it's going to come up empty because God is life. So try as you may and imitate as much as you want. You won't have life without God. The only thing I could compare this to in modern day society that would help maybe make sense of this is food, right? Because I love food. And um, if anyone spends much time with me, I love food. I love eating healthy food that tastes good. Like I know that some of you guys don't know that exists, but uh, it does. I figured out, uh, out how to do that. And, and so generally speaking, we all know on a very basic level, what's healthy? I think if I asked anyone, like vegetables, healthy. Yeah, good. Fruit, healthy. Uh, most meat, healthy, right? Like if it's good meat, you know, from Herman's or something, um, uh, th- then healthy. That's a butcher shop nearby, guys. You should check it out. Uh, but but we, want, we, want to, we want health in our society. Everybody wants to be healthy, but then they don't want to eat healthy food, 
right? And so what, what do we do? What do we do to make up for this is we take terms that, that, that sound healthy and we put them in front of products that we know aren't healthy, right? So we're like, whole grain Pop-Tarts. Oh, well, that must, real fruit filling. Um, you know, I want soda, but I want it to be diet. Oh, because, yes, I used to work at McDonald's as a teenager. And you guys all know that, like, like Big Fry, Big Mac, diet soda. Yes, that's going to make up for it. And when you look at it, it's only diet because they made a bunch of fake things and put it in there, and then it's going to kill you later. Um, I need fat-free candy. I want gluten-free bread. I want a 900-calorie frap, but I want you to make it skinny, right? Like, they put the word skinny on the menu at Starbucks, so you feel good ordering it. You're like, I want da 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 You name, like, 20 things. It's like syrup and whipped cream and marshmallow, but skinny, right? They're like, okay, right, we're putting the skim milk in there, uh, so... But that's what we do. And then we're like, why am I not healthy? (laughs) I'm eating all these things that say health on them. If they have to have the label health on them, they're they're probably not healthy, right? Like there's no healthy apples at the grocery store, right? There's no like fat-free bananas or, you know, it doesn't happen. And so what we've seen in the past 20 years in our country is like a huge rise in these kind of products, right? Like like all kinds of fat-free and healthy and extreme this and extreme that and super turbocharged this and that that's good for you. And at the same time as those things are going up, we're watching like our cholesterol go up and our heart attacks go up and our waistlines go up. And like we're like, oh, this is crazy. Um, but that's, it's the same deal, man. It, you know, God is life and we can't have life apart from him. And we do the same thing with food where we're like, I want to be healthy, but I want to eat all these things. And... Just make it work, and it doesn't work. It doesn't work, and life without God doesn't work because he is life. And so you can, again, you can have those fake imitations. You can have spirituality and all these things that look kind of like God, but they're not God, and they're going to lead to death in the end. They're going to lead away from God. He is life. He's the only option. That's why Jesus didn't say, I'm one of the ways, right? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so we look at Moses laying out these laws, laying out these commands, saying, here's how God wants us to do life. Here's how he wants us to be connected to him. And and we know that in the end, that had to end. And and I love what Paul says in Romans on why, why did God even do this? Some people ask that, well, why did God give the law? Why did he give all these commands? I think Romans 3.20 sums this up really, really well. Uh, It says, for no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. That's what the law was there for. It was, it was set up. It was the prequel to Jesus. It, it was there so that, that as people tried to walk through and follow all these commands and follow these rules, they go, man, I can't do this. Like, I'm killing a whole lot of sheep to, to get, find forgiveness for my sin, right? I'm doing a lot of sacrifices, and it's not working. I'm not changing. And, and we look at the Ten Commandments, and they're very simple. They're very simplistic. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't sleep with your neighbor's wife. Take a day off every week. Don't envy your neighbor's stuff. Like these are things that I think anyone, even people that aren't Christians, could look at and go, yeah, these are really basic tenets of society that, that work really well. But even those, we fail pretty badly at. If you don't believe me, just turn the news on, right? Like you'll see every day the Ten Commandments broken on the news story. Probably the top news story because you got to have the worst up front, right, to just really get you in the mood uh, for the rest of the news. And And so... The Ten Commandments, I mean, if you even just look at the Old Testament, over and over and over and over, they're broken, and they're broken, and they're broken, and they're broken. So we can look at them and go, yeah, we all agree we shouldn't murder, but then people murder. And then, oh, we all agree we should just 
stay with our own wife and not find someone else's wife, but then adultery runs rampant and we have divorce rate of 50% in our nation. We all agree that we shouldn't steal, but it just gets easier and easier. And we try to clarify and say, well, this isn't stealing because it's digital and this and that. And we shouldn't envy our neighbor's stuff, but we're all in debt because we did. Um, it, the Ten Commandments may seem simple, but, but they're so hard. And so we need something else. We need something that's not just rules. And last week, Michael talked about Jesus. He talked about the Savior who came to start a new covenant as the covenant Savior. And this covenant, it wouldn't be based on external actions, but on internal change of our heart. It wouldn't be based on God just being our master, but him being our father. It's not just there to make us aware of our sinfulness, but to actually cleanse us from our sins and to change who we are. The writer of Hebrews lays this out beautifully. And so I want, to, I want you guys to turn there to Hebrews chapter 8. I, we're going to read about five verses here, so it might seem a little long. I think that if we, I, I believe so strongly that the word of God can change our lives. That even if I couldn't be funny or creative or anything with this message, if I were to just read the scripture, I believe the Holy Spirit could speak through it and change your heart. So I want to read Hebrews 8. We're going to start in verse 7. And I just want this to soak in and, and you guys to understand this. He lays out why Jesus had to come. It says, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second covenant to replace it. But when God found fault with the people, he said, the day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. And without a huge dissertation, we're included in that as, as the church. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors. When I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt. They did not remain faithful to my covenant, so I turned back on them, says the Lord. But this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord. For everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already. And I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. I love this passage. I love this. It's, it's so refreshing to read this. You don't need a priest. You don't even need me to say, hey, here's what it's like to know God. You can know him for yourself today. You don't have to vicariously live out a relationship with God through some hero, through some pastor, through some leader. You can have a thriving relationship with Jesus Christ today. That can start now. Uh, we're going we're gonna to take an altar call at the end. We're going to pray. And if you don't know Jesus, we're going to pray and I'll, I'll help you there. But man, you could start to say it right now in your seat. You start to say, Jesus, I need you. Save me. Change my heart. Forgive me. Like right now, you can know the Lord. You can have your sins forgiven and God will not even remember them anymore once you come to him. And like I said at the beginning, God comes after you in your darkest moment. He comes after you when he has every reason to write you off. He pursues you with forgiveness. He seeks you out with love beyond reason. Chad, you can come up. This is perfectly illustrated in Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, starting the new covenant with his own blood, with his own broken body, taking the punishment that we deserve, dying the death that we should have died for our sins, so that we could enter into covenant with God forever. And I said earlier that, that Adam and Eve defying God, walking away from that beautiful covenant, was the second darkest moment in human history. The darkest moment in human history is this. 
Jesus hanging on the cross, the day that we murdered God, the day that God came into human history to teach love, to teach forgiveness, to show us the Father's heart, and we put him on a cross. And we whipped him and we beat him and we drove nails through his hands and through his feet and we mocked him and we spat on him and we, and we desecrated him. That's the darkest moment in human history. Nothing comes close to that moment that a loving, serving God is crucified, is put to death on a cross amongst criminals. And in that moment, everything in me says, you know what, it makes sense that God could have just He's God. He could have done whatever he wanted. He could have started over. He could have said, really? Really? This is how you treat me. I come to show you love. I come to teach forgiveness. I come to let you know that God wants relationship with you. And you put me on a cross? He could have wiped us out. People suggested that. There was people in the crowd mocking him, saying, why don't you call the angels to come down? Save you. Pull you off of there. They're mocking him. They're spitting on him. They're... And so I want to read what God's heart is in that moment. Because again, some of you still aren't believing me. Some of you in your heart, you're like, no, I'm too sinful. I'm too dirty. I have too many labels on me. God can't forgive me. I can't forgive me. I want you to see God's heart in the worst moment in human history. He's bearing all sins. He's bearing past, present, future sins, which include all of yours. Even the ones you haven't committed yet. They're on him. He's feeling the weight of that. He's feeling the devastation, the darkness, the evil. That's on Jesus. The Bible says that he became sin. Jesus, who is life, became sin. He felt that. So let's read this. Luke 22, 33. When they came to a place called the skull, they nailed him to the cross. And the criminals were also crucified, one on his right hand and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them. He says, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. And the soldiers gambled for his clothes by throwing dice. In that dark hour, in the darkest moment of human history, the day that we murdered God, Jesus says, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand. Forgive them, God. The same, the same cry that God had in the garden when he rebukes the enemy and he brings his kids close and he kills the animals and he puts the skin on them and he covers their shame and he covers their nakedness. That same heart's cry that says, I'm going to take care of this because I love you guys. That's Jesus' cry on the cross. He's saying, forgive them. In a moment where none of us would say forgiveness. In a moment where all of us would be cursing and screaming and yelling at the top of our lungs that this was injustice. Jesus says, forgive them. And so today, whatever you're carrying, whatever whatever sin you've committed, whatever dark deed you've done, Jesus is crying out from heaven today, forgive them. And in that moment, where you sin, if, it, if it's today, if it's next week, in that moment where you screw up, because all of us in this room are going to screw up at some point again, know that Jesus is speaking over you. In that moment, forgive them. They don't get it still. They don't know what they're doing. That's his heart. That's why he went to the cross. So I want to pray. So if, if you guys could just bow your heads for a moment. 
God wants a covenant with you today. He has already initiated it. It started the day that he created the world when he said, I want a covenant with mankind. And it was brought to a glorious light on the cross when Jesus said, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He wants covenant with you. He's not, he's not, you don't need to wait. You don't need to put it off. You don't need to reason it out. You need to come to Jesus and find forgiveness for your sins. I'm gonna lead you in a really simple prayer. If you today wanna start that covenant with Jesus, if you wanna know God, I want you to put your hand in the air so I can know who's praying this with me. Come on, if that's you, I wanna, I wanna see your hand. I see that. We're gonna pray. I want, I want everyone here to pray with me. We're gonna, we're gonna pray right alongside those who for the first time are praying this prayer to Jesus. So let's make it loud. Let's make them comfortable and let's welcome them into the family of God. Say this with me. Dear God, forgive me. I'm a sinner, but I wanna be a saint. I accept your forgiveness. I accept your love. Change me today, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Lord, I I thank you for this day. I thank you for this moment in history, God, where people's lives were changed. God, and I pray that no lie of the enemy, no attack of Satan would be able to ever take that away from them. That they would never look back on this and think, oh, I was just feeling some emotions or it wasn't real. God, I pray that their hearts would change and that forever they would remember this day when they enter covenant with a living God, when they're covenant with Jesus Christ himself who forgave them on the cross before they were ever born, that his heart was to forgive them. Lord, I thank you that today, like your word says, that you're interceding and praying for us before the throne of God, that you are still active in our life, that you still love us, that you still care about us, that it wasn't just a moment in history, but it's forever, every day, every minute, every second, God. We love you. We thank you for your covenant. We thank you that from day one to the end of days, Lord, that you are a covenant God, that you'll never leave us or forsake us. Jesus, we love you. We're so grateful for who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.